when we are strengthened by Christ's power, when we put on God's armor, then and only then will we be able and we will be able to stand firm against all of these tactics. Listen, Christian, there is hope for you. It's okay to be in the battle, but we win. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How do God's plans and Satan's strategies interact to work out in your life today? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will bring us part 12 of his current series titled, Learning to Use God's Armor. Your greatest enemy would like to turn every trial into a series of sinful responses to make you angry at God, to make you bitter at another person, to bring doubt about God's Word and His goodness. Be on the alert, friend, and be forewarned. This is Satan's strategy. But as you'll learn today, when you are strengthened by Christ's power and when you put on God's armor, you'll be able to stand firm against all of Satan's tactics. Are you filled with hope that you can indeed overcome Satan's strategies today? Let's join our teacher now for more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Over in 1 John 5, here John, 1 John 5 verse 19, John refers to this and he says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He doesn't mean all the people. He doesn't mean the planet. He means the system that Satan has created. It's in his lap. It's his, he originated it, it belongs to him. It's his pet, if you will. And this system is a real problem. It's a problem in the lives of unbelievers. It steals the seed of the gospel according to the parable of the tares, or excuse me, the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. Someone hears the gospel, they respond, they're like thorny ground. The cares of the age, of the ion, choke out that seed, the thoughts of the world around them. Demas, you remember the co-worker of Paul who looked to be the real deal, but wasn't. What happened to Demas? In 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, having loved this present I own this present age, this present prevailing system of thoughts has deserted me. He went out from us, as John says, because he was not of us. So Satan uses it in the lives of unbelievers. But Satan also uses this world system to undermine the spiritual health and growth of Christians. Look at 1 John 2. As John writes to believers, and I hope in coming the coming year to begin a study of 1 John here on Sunday morning. But let me just call to your attention 1 John 2, verse 15. He's writing now to believers, and he's warning them, do not love the world. He doesn't mean the people in the world. He doesn't mean the created world. He doesn't mean you can't appreciate the beauty of God and the creation. He goes on to define it, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. He says, here's what I mean by the cosmos. I mean the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I'm talking about the evil system 
of sin and desire that Satan has established. And here he's saying, ultimately, if you love that and that's all you love, you're not a Christian at all. But he's also warning us who are truly believers that we can be sucked off by the power of the world. We can be pulled away from our devotion to Christ and develop an affinity toward the world. And we have to be warned. Satan baits us with a relentless stream of personal temptation by creating a world system that appeals to our fallenness. You know this. Everywhere you go, every day you live, as I do, you are tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Where did that come from? It's Satan's system. And it's a source of temptation. Now, a second way that he seduces us into personal temptation, not only does he create a world system that resonates with our fallenness, but secondly, by producing circumstances in each of our lives designed to appeal to our personal cravings. He creates individualized circumstances in each of our lives designed to appeal to our personal cravings. You see, he not only creates this sort of system that cries out to us everywhere we go, through books and billboards, through music and movies, through everything in the world we live in, but Satan's attacks are not merely generic. Satan does not have a one-size-fits-all form of temptation. He arranges for us to encounter temptations that are uniquely tailored to our own weaknesses and desires. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted. By the way, that's one of the places Satan is called the tempter. And he displays that with Jesus. Now, in Jesus' case, Satan perfectly suited the temptations he brought against Jesus to Jesus' situation and circumstances. In Jesus' case, of course, he had no internal fallenness for Satan to sort of play off of, as we do. But nevertheless, he crafted those temptations to suit Jesus' circumstances. Think about it. You know, I haven't eaten for two hours, and I'm hungry. Three hours now, I guess. I'm hungry. Jesus hadn't eaten for how long? Forty days. So what is the very first temptation Satan comes against Jesus with? You know what? You could show your power by turning those stones into bread. He suited his temptation to the circumstances in which Jesus was. What about the second one? He knew Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He knew he was, in fact, the Messiah. And so he says, I'm going to take you to the pinnacle of the temple. You can throw yourself off, and everybody will know you're really the Messiah. He geared his temptation to Jesus' own personal circumstances. And through his demons, Satan does the same to every one of us. In James 1, James describes the process of temptation. It's a fascinating passage. I would encourage you at some point to read it. But in, in James 1.14, he says this. He says, each one, each one of us, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Very interesting. He uses the language of fishing. James grew up by the Sea of Galilee, and he understands all of that. So he says, we are carried away. That pictures allure. It pictures drawing something away. In classical Greek, it was used to describe the drawing of the fish out of its original retreat. You know, it's there in the reeds, just resting in the cool of the day. And there, just outside of the 
the, the reeds or the weeds there on the bottom, it sees the lure. There's the bait. And enticed. That means to seduce. That fish is sitting back there looking out there at that bait, be it an insect or an artificial lure or worm or whatever it is, and it's dangling there, and that lure, that external lure, excites an internal craving to have that. This is how Satan works. Our cravings attach themselves to some external opportunity. For example, in the case of David, you remember in 2 Samuel 11, he's on the top of his palace and he sees a woman immodestly clothed. In the case of Achan, he's just doing his job, going through the city, doing what he ought to do in Jericho, and there he sees some money and expensive clothes. An external circumstance excites that internal craving. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, you remember he's walking around the palace looking at the great city he had built, and that external temptation of the magnificent city of Babylon brought into his heart an inner craving that exalted the pride that he felt, and he responded. When it comes to our temptation, understand this. When you are tempted, James says in James 1.14, it springs out of your own internal lust. Don't misunderstand the word lust. There it's not sexual. It certainly includes sexual sin, but it's much broader than that. It's craving anything God forbids. There is within our fallenness, There is a part of you, let me back up and say it this way, there is a part of you that remains unredeemed if you're a Christian. The Bible calls it your flesh. Its beachhead is your body. And that part of you that remains unredeemed has growing out of it constantly, flowing out of it, these unredeemed cravings. You want something that God has forbidden. It's a part of original sin. You inherited it, and it will be with you until your dying day or till the Lord returns and perfects you. But what happens is Satan knows that, and he personalizes some external lure that awakens those personal cravings. He knows exactly what bait to bring. Our temptations come from our own lusts, but who supplies the external bait by which our lusts are awakened and enticed? The answer is Satan, either through the world system that he has established or through personally tailored circumstances. By the way, this idea of personally tailored external temptations brought by Satan against us is throughout the Scripture. Let me, I won't have you turn there, but let me just mention a couple of them to you. Read Genesis 3. Read the story of the temptation of Eve. He suits her temptation exactly to her circumstance. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan tempts David. David had been very successful. had built this huge army, had been very successful. And Satan uses the, the scope of his conquest, the size of his army against the pride in David's heart. He uses all that to awaken the pride in David. He says, let's count the people. I mean, let's count the army. This just shows how great we are and what we've been able to accomplish, and he was taking that on himself. In Acts 5.3, you remember Ananias comes with the, the gift for the church. Here we go. We have this, we've sold this piece of land. We want the church to have all of the money because we want people to think well of us. You see what's happening there? 
Ananias has this internal sinful craving for recognition, to be admired, to be thought spiritual, and Satan dangles the sale of that property. He says, oh, here's a great chance for you to get some of that. Get some of that pride exalted to people to think well of you. There are other examples. 2 Corinthians 2, an unwillingness to forgive. Satan will attack. Ephesians 4.27, when we have an outburst of anger, he will take opportunity through that. 1 Timothy 3.6, when we too quickly elevate a new convert to leadership, Satan will seize on that. 1 Timothy 5, 15, a young widow who wants to be remarried, Satan will seize on that to tempt her into sin. Let me ask you pointedly, what are the areas of sin that you consistently struggle with? I don't want you to write them down. Obviously, I don't want you to speak them out, but I want you to think, what are the one, two, or three sins that you consistently struggle with in your heart and life? Understand that those cravings come out of that part of you that is still fallen, out of your flesh, as the Bible calls it. But what Satan does is he finds a way to get you into an external circumstance whereby he can excite that craving. Maybe it's a billboard you see on the way to work. Maybe it's a book you read. Maybe it's a magazine. Maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's whatever. But he finds some external bait to awaken that sinful internal craving. That's his mission. That's his strategy and temptation. There's a third way Satan uses temptation, or a third way he seduces us with personal temptation. Not only does he do so by creating a worldwide system that appeals to our fallenness, not only does he do so by creating circumstances that appeal to our personal cravings. But thirdly, he tempts us by trying to turn our personal trials into temptations. Trying to turn our personal trials into temptation. God brings trials into our life. God takes full responsibility. He brings the troubles, whether they be the small troubles of daily life or whether they be the huge problems, the the tragic circumstances of a death in the family or cancer or whatever. God brings those trials into our life. He does so to strengthen our faith, to build our endurance, and to prove the genuineness of our faith. Not to Him. He already knows whether or not we're in Christ. To us. If we stay through the trial, if we remain faithful to Christ through the trial, it proves to us that we're really Christ, and it builds our hope. So God intends those trials for good. He plans to use all the trials in our lives for good. But because we are sinful, because there is a part of us that's still fallen, what do we do? Well, a trial comes, and do we always respond well? No. We often respond very poorly. And Satan seizes on that opportunity to turn that trial that God means for good in our lives into sin. There's so many examples of this. You remember Job. In Job chapter 1, this is exactly what's happening. God brings Job up to Satan. Why? Because God intends to bring a trial into Job's life for Job's good, and frankly, ultimately for our good as well, so we can see it and read it and be encouraged by it. God had a good purpose 
for bringing those trials. Did Satan have the same good purpose? No. Look at Satan's purpose. Job 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. There was Satan's plan. So you got two agendas going on at the same time. God's agenda is to bring a trial into Job's life for his spiritual good. Satan's intention at the same time is to produce sin in Job's life through those trials. Same thing happens in chapter 2 when God allows Satan to attack Job's health. And of course, Job's wife was no help. She only encouraged Satan's agenda. Why don't you just curse God and die? But what I want you to see is in that situation, there were these two agendas in the trials. God had an agenda for Job's and our spiritual good. Satan had an agenda to bring Job to curse God. This happens all the time. Look in Paul's life. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We love this because here's Paul facing serious trial, and it makes us connect with him because we do. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He knew why he had a trial. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that were given me for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. There God had a good purpose in bringing these trials into Paul's life. But that wasn't Satan's purpose. It was a messenger of Satan to torment me, literally to beat me. There's this thorn in the flesh. You say, what was the thorn in Paul's flesh? You know, you've heard everything from his mother-in-law to, you know, to his physical problems. The most common response to that question is it, it may have been a physical problem. Paul refers elsewhere to his eyes, and, and there may have been some physical malady. There's also a good case can be made for this being a person, particularly the person in Corinth who is spearheading under demonic influence the revolt against the gospel and against Paul. We don't really know, but that doesn't matter. The bottom line is there was this trial, and during the trial there were two agendas. There was God's agenda to keep Paul from exalting himself, to humble him and keep him dependent. Verse 9, to help him depend on God's grace. And there was Satan's agenda. who was out to torment him. In all of these cases, God allowed or sent a test for the spiritual good of the believer. Satan tried to turn that test, that trial, into a source of temptation. I want you again to think right now for a moment about what are the trials in your life right now? What are the troubles that you're facing right now as you sit here this morning? Understand that God ultimately takes responsibility for those trials, and He intends to use them for your spiritual good. He wants to strengthen your faith, to build your endurance, to strengthen your hope that you're really the real thing as you persevere through the trial. But what does Satan want to do? He would like nothing better than to turn that trial into sin, to make you angry at God, to make you bitter at another person, to bring discouragement into your life. 
to produce doubt about God and His goodness and His power. That's what Satan wants to do. Be on the alert. This is his strategy. He will tempt you, and one way he will tempt you is by trying to turn your trials into a source of temptation in your life. Be forewarned. So those are Satan's primary strategies against believers. He attacks the Word of God, he intimidates with fear and persecution, and he seduces us with an endless stream of personal temptation. Be aware. Those are his strategies. And I've taken this amount of time to show you those strategies so you can be forearmed, but I also want you to see how relentless, how powerful our enemy really is. He hates you and will do everything he can to destroy your soul. And there is no way on our own that we can ever defend ourselves against such a powerful, relentless enemy and keep fighting on all those fronts. So what do we do? Go back to Ephesians 6. I love this. Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that, underline these words, you will be able to stand firm. You will be able to stand firm. When we are strengthened by Christ's power, when we put on God's armor, then and only then will we be able and we will be able to stand firm against all of these tactics and all of these strategies. That's exciting. Listen, Christian, there is hope for you. It's okay to be in the battle, but we win. As Winston Churchill once said, nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. But on our own, we are no match for our enemy. We need to constantly remind ourselves that we cannot face Satan's strategies in our own strength and win. Let me give you One last passage and one last illustration. Peter is a perfect example. I love Peter because, frankly, I see myself here, and I see you here. Look at Luke 22. Luke 22. It's the night before our Lord's crucifixion, the night of His betrayal, the night of the Last Supper. Luke 22, verse 31. He says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now watch Peter's response in verse 33. Here here I am. Here you are. But Peter said to Christ, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you, will, that you know me. Did you notice Peter's personal resolve? I will never do this. I have made up my mind. I am strong. I can do this. I will never desert you. That night he denied our Lord three times before the cock crowed and probably four times altogether and several times with a curse. And the only reason Peter was not altogether destroyed was Christ's own personal intervention. Did you see it? Christ says, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. 
Do you understand what Peter later came to understand? That Christ alone is the source of our power to stand firm against Satan's strategies? We have to be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of His might. He has the power. He demonstrated it in His own temptation, never giving in. He demonstrated it in His ministry when He cast out demons and put Satan to flight. He demonstrated at the cross when in Colossians 2 we're told he defeated Satan and led him in triumph. Here's the bottom line. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you can only stand firm by being strengthened with the power that he has. How? According to this passage, by putting on God's armor. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 12 of his current series titled Learning to Use God's Armor. Join us next time for part 13. What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music